morning. Today is Friday, September 23rd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for listening. Fall has fell here in Minnesota. It's my favorite season of the year, and I hope the weather is nice where you are. But regardless, it's still a great day to gather around God's Word. So whether you're hearing us over the air or streaming or as a podcast, I'm so glad you're here. Settle in. Open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org. Now, every Friday, I start the show by pulling from the listener mailbag to share some of your comments and perhaps answer questions live on the air. Today is Friday, so we're going to reach into the old email bag to see what we have. And while I pull out that email, I just want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to drop a line and say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, we've received many letters over the past uh, few weeks, and among them, we've gotten them from North Carolina, from the Philippines, from all the way across the globe in Sri Lanka. Uh, Last time we were talking, uh, actually was a few episodes ago, we were talking about the idea of phonetic punctuation. I think we were with Pastor Larry Bean at the time. And so Stephen Mackey from Columbus, Nebraska, thankfully sent me a a video of Victor Borg. He was uh, giving his uh, comedic routine on phonetic pronunciation. I don't know that I will be able to work that into the uh, to the program, but I certainly appreciate you listening and sending that my way and letting me look at it. Um, Also, we had an email from uh, Kathleen. And she says, rejoice, your sins are forgiven as far as east is from the west. So far does he remove our sins from us. Uh, That is a wonderful message from her, and we're certainly grateful for her for doing that for us. Um, And finally, we have another one uh, from uh, Anthony. And Anthony reaches out from Kenya. And he says he works for the ELCK communication department as a radio technician and producer. And uh, he says we have a few missionaries from the U.S., mainly from the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And so he wanted to reach out to us and say hello. Thank you for listening. Continue to send your messages in. I have a few more, including a question for next Friday about Paul's use of uh, language or so-called run-on sentences that we often talk about. So if you're interested in that, tune in next Friday. Okay, well, without any further ado, I want to move on to our topic for today, which is 1 Corinthians 8. In chapter 8, Paul takes up a new topic of concern for the Corinthian Christians that they've undoubtedly written him about, and that is whether they're permitted to buy and eat meat in the marketplace, which has been previously sacrificed to idols and false gods. And by extension, can they participate in the feasts that often happen in these temples? And we gather from his response that some of the Christians were reveling in their Christian freedom to the detriment of weaker Christians. 
not exactly what the Christian life of self-abnegating service looks like. So that's our conversation today. And joining the conversation is my guest, the Reverend Philip Fischaber, uh, pastor of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Walnut, Illinois. Uh, pastor Fischaber, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to have you on board. You know, maybe share with our listeners and me just a little bit about yourself and what God is doing through your ministry at Holy Trinity. Well, I'm here at Holy Trinity in Walnut, the southwest corner of the Northern Illinois District, a small little TLH parish. So my congregation is unfamiliar with our theme hymn, but there's lots of good stuff in TLH, too. And I'm also pastoral oh, advisor to Christ Lutheran School in Sterling, a school shared among members of five LCMS congregations. Nice. Wonderful. Uh, I assume and, that all kinds of great things are going on for you and your community. Uh, for, Walt, for the Holy Trinity at Walnut, in that, in that area that you're at, um, is that mostly farming or are these uh, townies, you know, people? What, what, what kind of folks do you have there? A mix. Lots of farming. There's also some construction companies and prefabricated carpentry and other work. So a mix in this area. A lot of good hardworking folks. That's great. Well, I'm sure they have tuned in eager to hear your insight into this passage today. Uh, any pagan temples there where they're participating in uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols? No pagan temples. <laughs> but I, I imagine as we go through this chapter, uh, we're going to find that it still applies to us today, even if we don't see the pagan temples right around the corner. Uh, brother, let's just get into it. But before we begin, I'd like to invite you to start us off with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who enlightenest the minds of all the faithful, send we beseech of thee thy Holy Spirit among us, that by study of thy word we may learn the ways of prudence, that we may love thee and our neighbor aright. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that prayer, brother. And yes, your TLH is showing. <laughs> so we're going to start. But the way we begin is just getting some of these uh, verses out in the open. Now, while there are uh, 13 verses in this chapter, I'm only going to read the first six. Here we go. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge, quote, this, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and, quote, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now that ends the first 
basically half of our text for this morning. So, brother, he's taking up this issue. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, you know, where is Paul starting off this argument? Undoubtedly, they've written to him about it. But uh, help us understand what's going on in Corinth. Okay. It's a question of eating food. And basically, you get meat from two different sources in the ancient world. Ritual slaughter, which is your sacrificed meat, and profane slaughter, which just means generic, not at all religious. Nothing related to bad words or like we use the word profane today. Sure. And it seems... Kind of like the Latin vulgar, right? It means the same thing, just common. Exactly. And so we see, especially in chapter 10, when Paul takes this up again, that there was concern, can we eat meat? Do we have to be worried about it? In chapter 10, Paul says, just buy meat in the marketplace and don't worry about it. Don't trouble yourself with where it came from. But if someone tells you it was sacrificed, then don't eat it. But I'll leave that for when you get to that next week. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But the issue here is, seems like Paul had told them, don't worry about meat in the marketplace. And then the Corinthians just took it and ran with it and didn't stop to think about what it was doing to their brothers and sisters in the faith. Yeah, I mean, it speaks a lot to this concept that Yes, while there is such thing as pure doctrine, and we should seek to have our doctrine pure and be knowledgeable and mature, we must consider our brothers. Part of living out our faith and living out our doctrine is you know, serving one another. Now, I understand that in Corinth at this time, it was – you said there were two types of meat, and, and actually where it was, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of meat in general. So the meat that would have been available likely would have been pretty expensive. And you can access meat two ways, if I understand correctly. One is in the marketplace, as you said. And and how do you really know if this meat has been sacrificed to idols or not? It was very common practice for uh, them to sacrifice it in their temples. The priest would eat some or the worshiper would. They'd burn it at the altar, some of it at the altar. And then if they didn't, if they had a lot left over, they would then sell that in the marketplace. But you had real no no idea on which one was sacrificed to idols and which wasn't. But then there was another practice, which is basically they'd have meals in temples, right? They'd have meals at these different temples. If you were working for someone and his daughter was getting married and they had a reception or something, they might invite you, dear Christian, to go to the reception at the idol. So what, what do you do? So we can see, right, Pastor, that the Corinthians were having some real-life issues going on, and they were ha- trying to figure out how to navigate this. Mm-hmm. So keep, so keep us going, brother. So, so um, in, in addition to foods offered by idols and what he's talking about here, you know, they weren't wrong, were they, when they said that, um, you know, an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one? So where is the crux of Paul's concern? As you said, the Corinthians are factually correct, but the issue is they're applying it destructively because they're not doing it in love. 
Pastor Gribbenau and Pastor Wise earlier this week brought up Luther's freedom of a Christian. A Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Well, the Corinthians were only paying attention to the first half of that paradox and were celebrating their freedom without regard for everyone else. And Paul's saying, hey, actually, you're hurting your brother here. You need to think about what you're doing and act instead in love. Right. I mean, when he quotes things like an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one, it sounds like the Corinthians may be the ones who felt that they had this superior knowledge that he also quotes. Uh, all of us have or possess knowledge that these guys thought, yeah, they we're, we're mature Christians. We can go out into the marketplace and look at us go to all these temples and we're just going to eat all this food because there is no such thing as idols. We know there's only one God. So, you know, there's no there's no sense in worrying about where this meat was sacrificed or to whom it was sacrificed. And I mean, they aren't wrong, but they were wrong in the fact that they were taking their so-called superior knowledge and yeah, not applying it in love, as you say. So we're going to keep on looking at this. We have uh, verse 6, he says, For us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what I think is fascinating is that the, the, uh, the apostle here is in one way not commending, but he's acknowledging that they have the right understanding, that there is only one God, but how, 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 what is, what is the context by which the weaker brother is harmed? Now we're going to, we haven't gotten into that text yet, but we haven't read it anyway, but in what way is the weaker brother harmed if he sees someone out in the marketplace eating, uh, eating, uh, a, a, a burger, a bale burger, as I like to call them, right? Something sacrificed to idols. You have one Christian who knows there's nothing wrong with it. But where are these weaker brothers coming from? Why would they, if they were also Christians, still have trouble with that? What do you think, Pastor? Well, today we're a very monotheistic society. We think about one God. We're not used to polytheism anymore. But in the ancient world, that was normal. The Jews and then the Christians were the exception of only worshiping one God. And so, if you worship Jesus, and you're also eating in the temple, can you worship Jesus and Baal, Jesus and Demeter, or Asclepius, or some of the other temples we know served meat in Corinth? It's not just crass paganism of, oh, I'm going to worship some other god and not Jesus. It's a question of, can we have Jesus and... So if I hear so, you right, if I I'll just say if I hear you right, you're saying that these weaker brothers would be thinking, well, I, I'm still connected in some emotional ways to the my pagan past, and now that I've become a Christian, 
I, you know, it's not just that I want to continue socializing with pagans, which Paul tells us elsewhere that we should. He, he never tells us that we should cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he, uh, after chapter 5, verse 9, he wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but then he's sure to say, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And then he goes on to explain that he's talking about do not associate with people who claim to be Christians that still behave in these ways. But out in the world, we still have to go places. We still have to eat out. <laughs> you know, We have to uh, buy, purchase, purchase things. And so, yeah, I, I can hear what you're saying, that these weaker brothers – would look at the stronger, so-called stronger brothers and sisters and say, well, if they're out there eating, then they must be acknowledging or witnessing to the fact that those false gods are real. And therefore, I could have it both ways. I could have Jesus and I can also have these pagan gods of my past with which I'm very comfortable. Uh, is that kind of where, what I'm hearing? Yeah, and that's really the story of most of the Old Testament, too. You mentioned Baal burgers. That's the issue in Kings. Not so much can we serve Baal instead of the Lord, but can we have Baal and Yahweh and Molech and all these other Canaanite gods alongside the true God, the Lord? And obviously the prophets do not approve of that and keep calling people to repentance even after they're punished and face exile, the constant refrain is, no, you can only serve the one true God and no others. So it's not like this is unique to Corinth or their situation. It's something God's people have always struggled with. Absolutely. And I believe that we still have some situations today where we could say, um, there is food offered up that is sacrificed to other gods. Uh, one of the things that I think about whenever I am trying to apply this text to today, and it, it doesn't have to be a literal application. You know, We don't have to take this literal situation that's going on in Corinth and, as you say, in other places during this time and drop it into the 21st century and then say, okay, you know, as long as you're – not eating at places that uh, serve bale burgers and pagan paninis. As long as you're not eating at these temples, then you're fine. Um, there, there's the weaker brother argument, which speaks to a greater truth that we can apply. But just for a moment, if I could be literal, you know, I think of those foods that are kosher or those foods that are halal. So kosher foods are those that are produced under rabbinic supervision. Um, and in a way, sacrifice to a false god, a god that does not include Jesus, recognizing Jesus as a part of uh, the triune god as he's revealed himself. And then we have these halal foods, which are uh, basically the same thing, but for the Muslim community, where they sacrifice in a certain particular way, actually a kind of brutal way, uh, animals. And if you go to a halal deli, then all the animals there will essentially have been sacrificed to Allah, the false god of the Muslims. And so even today, we have situations where if we were to be very particular about this, we would say, oh, wow, well, Paul is encouraging us to, before we partake in, say, kosher or halal foods, 
to make sure that those around us say someone who's formerly Muslim or someone who is formerly Jewish don't think that we're doing so in order to please God as if we believe in these false gods, but rather, you know, we're just exercising our Christian freedom. Uh, do you see where I'm going with that? And have you ever thought about have you ever thought about that perspective or do you have any other examples when you try to apply this? Yeah, I actually have some personal examples. Excellent. I'd love to hear them. I'm a Ph.D. student at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And so reform Judaism, not everyone keeps kosher, but they generally have kosher offerings. They have an interfaith grad school, so they're used to Christians, particularly conservative Christians, coming. And there were lots of meals we were offered, and there were kosher options. And in that specific situation, they weren't expecting anything from us. So I ate and didn't worry about it, because no one was under the impression that me having lunch meant... I agreed with them. Correct. Or in undergrad, we had lots of Muslim students because of the petroleum engineering program. And so Eid al-Fitr, the feast at the end of Ramadan, which is their holy month of fasting, there was always food in the dorm celebrating it. And you know college students and free food. People are happy to have it. Well, sure. the Muslim students were very clear that this was just a meal. People would come ask, you know, is this like a religious thing? What is it? And they'd say, no, we're breaking our fast and we celebrate with everyone. This is just a nice meal and we're happy to have fellowship. So in that situation, they were making very clear to everyone who came by we don't think you're agreeing with us if you have some nice Middle Eastern food. It's just food. Nice. But say one of our Concordias were to do that, well, that would be official approval of this, and that's a line we can't cross. Because oh, I, it would seem what, yeah. like we're endorsing it, and... I mean, President Don at Concordia University in Chicago in my district has made very clear we want to be open, we want whoever wants to come, but we are not crossing that line of compromising our Lutheran confession. And that's really the question that has to be asked in each circumstance. Is this compromising my confession, or is it not? And if it is... It appears I was just going to say it appears as though the confession goes two ways. You know, when Paul is speaking of it, it seems a little bit more specific to what are you confessing to that new or weaker brother or sister in the faith? You know, how are you considering their needs and how are you displaying your Christian freedom? Is it in a way that's loving or is it in a way that is drawing them back to to where they have come from? And then in our day, a lot of the ways that we think about witnessing is not always to one another, but the witness to the world. And so as you're describing, our participation in things will give a witness. Does it witness to unbelievers and those outsiders that, hey, we are in you know complete fellowship with 
all these different uh, apostates or, or false religions? Or is it just giving the witness that, hey, we, we like free food in the dorm on EID? That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, I think that context, even though we don't have bail burgers, which is why I joked about it at the beginning, even though we don't have temples we necessarily sacrifice to, the, the core teaching here continues into this day about witnessing to those Christians who are still um, naive and growing in the faith, fledgling, and to outsiders who are either A, wanting to know more about us, who are always ready to accuse us of things like hypocrisy and inconsistency in our faith. So as you said, we must consider, right, we must consider carefully what the witness will be whenever we participate in any of this, whether it's, you know, eating EID food that's that's being made available by Muslims out of friendship or whether it's participating in a, an activity that would give the idea that, yeah, we're we're on board for this. And and now I don't have a relationship with anything, anybody like that, such that I can give a personal testimony, but I do find it amusing. Every church I've been to uses a particular wine for communion, and it's always like Concord grape, which is fine. And then it's typically like a kosher dessert wine. So Manischewitz and Mogan David, uh, I think we get the bottom of the bottom shelf here at my church. It's it's the one that has all the dust on it at the bottom. It's like $2 a gallon. Uh, it's called Temple Wine. And I ask, and not every church does this, but I think most of them probably do. And I say, well, why do you choose this particular wine? And, and I've had altar groups tell me, oh, because it's kosher. You know, and it's like, well, that doesn't actually mean anything. Um, it's important that it be grape wine. But, you know, we don't have to get kosher wine, just so you know. So I think it's it's fascinating how we sometimes bind ourselves to these uh, so-called modern-day sacrifices to false gods, even when we don't need to. And we think that somehow it has meaning when it doesn't. Uh, I, what type of wine do you use at your church, do you know? I'm pretty sure it's Manish Evans. Yeah, it's either one or because the other, it's usually, like I said. cheap. It's good for the budget, so we get the wine that works and is easy. We're Lutherans, Excellent. after all. We don't want to waste well, money. That's right. And it's sweet, too. And I think it's more palatable to most people. But yeah, well, you know, we have uh, half of this chapter still to go, and we are going to dig into that as soon as we return from our break. So let's pause for just a few moments and listen to these messengers messages. Dear listener, don't you go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, uh, Pastor Fishaber and I will continue our discussion of First Corinthians chapter eight, the second half. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Philip Fishaber, pastor of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Walnut, Illinois. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were talking about how what we do gives a witness, at least in two directions, uh, toward our fellow Christians and toward the outside world, to outsiders, unbelievers. So when addressing the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols, St. Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians that while indeed false gods are just that, false, truly nothing at all, one has to show love toward their neighbor and the things that they do. Let's get the rest of our text out in the open so that we can include it in the conversation. We've already dipped into it several times, but I'm going to be beginning with verse 7 through verse 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, that's the end of the text here for chapter 8. So, he's He's brought in what we've already talked about, and that is that the one concern, or at least one concern, is that the weaker Christian who's recently been pagan will see the stronger Christian eating food offered to idols, which is their right. You, you brought it up already that in chapter 10 he clarifies, and, and even here he says, yeah, you can eat food offered to idols. That's not what he's prohibiting. What he's saying is that you have this right because you have this knowledge but that knowledge without love is not good. And if the weaker brother who doesn't quite understand that and have that knowledge sees you, why you might you might actually be calling him or giving him the witness that these things are real. And, and as you so aptly said earlier in our conversation, that you can just place those false gods right on the shelf with Jesus as if they're all just the same. So it really does have a lot to do with witness and loving the weaker brother. So... You know, starting with, uh, well, any of these verses, really, but um, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Yeah, you know, I think that when we think about it today, we, we, we often will be like the stronger Christians in this passage where we think, well, we have this perfect understanding or this good understanding. We have this good doctrine, and therefore, if you don't believe the way we do or you don't have the same doctrine we do, then that's not our fault because we have the right doctrine and, and you're wrong. And the reality is that maybe they're not wrong so much as they are um, misinformed, ignorant, weak, someone for whom Christ died, someone who that we should eagerly bring up to our so-called superior knowledge so that they can also have that same freedom. So there's lots of ways to apply this, brother. Um, take, take it away. You know, what else can we learn from this passage? 
Oh, there's lots here, but if I can dive into verse 7 and give some of the background to that. Yeah, that'd be great. First. So, in addition to having polytheism, not everyone fully believed in these gods or in the stories. A really big thing in this period was Stoic allegory of the myth. The Stoics were a monotheistic philosophical sect, and they participated in everything because it was their duty as citizens to do so, but they said, these stories don't actually mean what they say. Because if you've ever read the Iliad or the Odyssey or just any of the Greek myths, you say, yeah, these aren't good people. And so they would take these stories and make them about some philosophical virtue or hidden knowledge and turn them into useful ideas for education or moral training. And lots of these people were eating in the temples in Corinth, too. And so it's not just, I believe in Jesus and Demeter and Zeus and everyone else. It's also this idea of, well, maybe this weak brother is going to think he can take truth from these false gods and allegorize it or otherwise apply it to the truth and kind of put his own religion together. Which is something we very much see today. Not with paganism, but look at the books in the religion and spirituality section of a bookstore, and it's all this picking and choosing that we see today. So Does that make sense? So yeah, it does, and I'm just I'm just contemplating what you're saying. So I guess I've always thought about the you know the allegorization of these stories to be a little bit on the sense of like um, fables and moral tales, uh, children's stories, whereby they're fictional but they teach kind of fundamental truths, truths that can even be found within Christian teaching. And so if I hear you correctly, you're saying that. It's not it's, it's not as much that, or maybe it's that, but in addition to more it, it'd be more it'd be better to apply it to like these spiritual self help spirituality books where people are buffet style putting together their own methods of spirituality, which I'm usually pretty cynical about because I think it's just to sell books for the most part. But they but then people buy these things and now they have a whole plethora of different areas where they're drawing truth from when the truth that is solid and salvific comes from only one place. And so Paul has some concerns here, not just that they're going to worship all these gods alongside Jesus, but that they're going to start mixing and meshing the religions together and thereby be very confused. Did I get that right? Yeah. And, I mean, there's some cynicism. It comes in all different styles. The technical term is omnism, which teaches that no religion has all of the truth, but all of them contain some part of truth. Mm 
And that really seems to be the zeitgeist of our age. Not everyone fully does that, but anytime you start trying to draw from these other religions, you run the risk of going too far. Paul in Athens quotes the pagan philosophers and says, even your philosophers teach this. That's a very good use of this to evangelize to the people, but we have to walk that fine line of not taking truth from somewhere that's not Christianity and letting it affect what we believe about the Bible. And, yeah, I, mean, I hear you. You have to be very strong to not fall into that trap. It's always a temptation, even for very experienced Christians. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I think about omnism, uh, or omnism, you know, this, what you just said, the, the idea that basically there's a recognition and respect of all religions, all gods, and, you know, you can get something from all of them. I, I, I think I might push back a little bit that that's the zeitgeist of our age. I think it was definitely there for a while and is in larger populations. But I'm almost thinking that, and it's not anti-religion, which would be the exact opposite, that no religions are valuable. I'm almost thinking that the zeitgeist of our age is like a modified omnism that every religion is valuable except the predominant ones or except for Christianity. It, it seems almost a knee-jerk reaction against the truth of God and where, whereby people seek out almost anything but what, what the true God has revealed. Uh, there's some other terms for this. Sheilaism, which was named after Sheila Larson, who basically said, you know, you can pick and choose from all your different religions. Uh, pandeism, you know, an 18th century idea where you just combine these different aspects of this creator deity, and then he ceased to exist, but now you learn from all the different philosophies. But, yeah, I, I think that in this world, yes, I think people appeal to all different types of spirituality and religions. But Christianity is is quickly becoming the, the one religion that you can't pull from. Except as soon as it's, they say that, but as soon as it's convenient, people do. I mean, we saw oh. some really absurd claims about student loan forgiveness and people trying to justify it from the Bible. And I'm not trying to get into whether that's good or bad, but... It's completely unrelated to the Sabbath year or other verses they were trying to pull from. And any political question, both sides pull in the Bible, regardless of whether it's related. And so... Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that, too. Um, I mean, reality, you know, as it is... You know, people who are even against Christianity would not want to live in a world where Christianity had never existed. And the fundamentals of what it is to be in Western society, including law and order, the elevated status of women, the respect for all people, even the idea that other cultures have the right to exist, that, you know, other religions can be tolerated, the, the right to be wrong, all comes from the Christian ethic. So, you know, they can't get away from Christianity, but they certainly want to distance themselves from it. Um, not not politically speaking, but we, we've seen this time and again from, from as you've pointed out, 
that people will want to pick and choose from the Bible in order to appeal to Christians. But I don't see them as believing that themselves. I see them just as using the Bible as a tool to, you know, argue a, a for or against whatever they're wanting to argue about. In this text, you know, our witness to the weaker brother and our witness to the world, which is something we've added to the idea, but I think it applies, is really important because sometimes what we believe, teach, and confess is consistent with other religions. Um, Islam, for instance, I would argue is based on, you know, mixes of Judaism and Christianity and Zoroastrianism. And, you know, in his area, he's taking from all these things. So it can become very confusing to the weaker brother or the unbeliever who may be interested in what's going on. Why, you know, why there are different religions if we agree on some of these certain points. And it reminds me when I was in Haiti, uh, actually more specifically, I think this is a story from my dad was in Haiti. I'm stealing it from him, I think. But he was talking to uh, a one of the voodoo witch doctors, so to speak, that was in the town that we visit. And he basically had a belief where he believed in all these different spirits, but he also believed in Jesus. He, he didn't say he, he, he's a Christian. He just took the God of the Christians and added him to the shelf, as you said, when it's convenient. Um, that I would see is almost, you know, omnism. But I think in our world today, we definitely see people resisting Western values at an alarming rate, if for no other reason, just to be contrarian. Um, that doesn't prevent them, as you pointed out, from using Christian values or Christian scriptures when they think it's convenient, but I don't know that they're internalizing them. So that's why from our text today, our witness is so important because we have fledgling Christians who are saying, listen, I've just come from the world. The world is anti-Christian. And I want to be a Christian, but I'm going to lose so many friends. I'm going to lose so much by following the will and ways of God. And if they just see Christians out in the world on Monday through Saturday living as if Christ didn't matter, and then on Sunday being in church and holier than thou, then they're going to get this idea, just as Paul's saying, that, oh, I guess I can have it both ways. And I think that's the concern that, that you know we can also apply with this passage, we can address, I should say, with this passage. Definitely. And I just want to repeat that these are hard questions and you have to apply each circumstance to figure out, is this action at this specific point in time loving my brother or not? And it might differ from one to another. And now that I'm a pastor, I wouldn't necessarily go eat an eat alpha meal, even if it's acknowledged to completely be not religious, because it speaks something differently for a pastor to do that than for Joe Lehman off the street. But we always have to keep that in mind and try and make sure that we are helping our brother and loving him instead of loving ourselves and our own freedom. I know, at least in my context, I don't think that many of my people will have 
temptations to participate or concerns about participating in, say, EID or in any other false god, I guess why don't we try to apply this to some of the situations that uh, at least my people that I know have faced, and that is the baptism at the Mormon so-called church or the confirmation at the church that isn't consistent with our beliefs or the wedding that's a pagan wedding out in the woods somewhere and it's their cousin and they've been invited to go. You know, all the time our people are invited to participate in the idol's temple. And while it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with eating or drinking, it certainly has something to do with witness, which is the overarching message here. So what advice would you give? And I know, you know, it's it depends on context, but using some generalities, if our listeners are out there saying, wow, you know, I feel really uncomfortable going to my my nephew's gay wedding, you know, because I don't know what kind of witness I'm going to give. I'm not comfortable with it. Should I participate? Should I not? You know, can I just say, well, I don't agree with this, but I want to be here for you. You know, there's some tough questions that people are facing out there. Uh, does this text help us address those? I think it does. Paul's warning to watch for the weaker brother and verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I would say err on the side of not giving the wrong impression of endorsing something. And where Paul talks about food in Romans 14, he says that if whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. So don't let yourself be talked into doing something you don't think is right because you sh do have doubts and that's not a good act. And if you have to choose err on the side of giving a good, clear Christian confession, but at the same time, don't overly burden your conscience and be worried about every little thing. I would say don't try and take communion at the Catholic Church, but we believe that baptism's valid, so that's an easier thing to do to go be there for your relative than that gay wedding or a Mormon baptism, or something. But keep in mind the wealth, the spiritual welfare of your brother. And, and that I would say, look, and that should always that should always be on our mindset for sure. Is is not only our witness, but you know, how does this affect my neighbor? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, just continuing in, digging in, because we just have um, about 10 minutes left in the show. Um, he says we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do eat. So he does talk about this idea that what we do um, really isn't appealing anything to God in terms of, you know, and he says elsewhere and, and the scripture says elsewhere about certain days being holy uh, certain practices being holy. You know, there's a lot of adiaphora in the Christian life. There's a lot of Christian freedom. 
but freedom that comes with responsibility. And that responsibility is how it affects our neighbor, how it affects our brother. Right, Pastor? Uh-huh. And, I mean, we see this, and I think it's a weakness among many questions of, you know, drinking, smoking, gambling. People like to say, I'm exercising my freedom and showing people that I'm allowed to do this as a Christian. And maybe you are, but that's one that it's really easy to love your freedom and not think about the effect it has on your brother. Are you actually showing your freedom or are you offending your brother and damaging your Christian confession? Because lots of Christians are concerned about those issues and you might be free to do it, but it's really easy to harm people. It brings to my mind this question that's often asked, usually by either teenagers who are just trying to get a grasp on the nature of God or atheists who are anti-God. But they'll say something like, well, you know, if God is so powerful, can he create a rock that he even can't lift? Or, you know, can he uh, can he do something that is outside of his nature is what they essentially ask. So can God tell a lie? Can God break his promise? Can God create a rock so big that even he can't lift it? And the answer is no. No, God can't do all those things. Oh, I thought you said that he was all powerful. Yeah, but God doesn't do cannot do things that are outside of his nature. When we look at our life as a Christian, um there are things that are outside of the nature that we're supposed to have, and thereby it puts limits even on our Christian freedom. God, as God, is free to do whatever he wants. He's God. And yet there are things that he cannot do because it's outside of his nature. We are free in Christ. But it would be outside of the nature that God wants us to have to exercise our freedom in a way that harms our brother or sister in the faith or gives a witness to the world that is inconsistent with the true doctrine passed down through the prophets and apostles. So I, I do find that people like to try to twist the scripture or press Christians to the point where we are compromising our belief or even our old selves are pressing our pressing, uh, you know, our actions to say, well, well I'm going to go to that uh, that gay wedding. I'm going to go to that uh, false church, that cult where they're doing a baptismal. And, you know, I people will know that I don't agree with it, but I'm going to I'm going to go because, you know, I don't want grandma to be upset with me. When the reality is, those are things outside of your new self, outside of your nature. And while you technically could go do them, you wouldn't be doing them rightly. That, as you pointed out, is not exercising Christian freedom. That's just, you know, being a bad witness or bullying the weaker Christian. Mm -hmm. Well said. In the I last think... few minutes that we – oh, go ahead. I think 1 John 4:19 and following really needs to be the center of how we decide these things. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, 
whoever loves God must also love his brother. Right. It's so appropriate for this conversation and for Paul's – to understand more broadly Paul's text here. And that actually segues really great into what I was going to say next, and that is in our last few minutes of the program, uh, transition us. We, we've been talking a lot of law here. Transition us into a word of gospel. Share the gospel with our listeners in a way that maybe they can also go and share with their neighbor. Well, those words from John, we love because he first loved us. Paul isn't calling you to do anything strange or different. He's calling you to live like a Christian. We have the great love of Jesus that he became man. He suffered all things and died on the cross to forgive you. So how can you not love others when you have been so loved? You know, if I'm having a bad day, my kids come up, they just want to hug daddy as soon as they see me. It makes things better. You can't not smile when that happens. Any parent knows that. In the same way, when we receive the love of God, we can't help but smile and want to share that love with others. So... Yes, Paul has a word of law because the Corinthians were falling into error. But the motivation to love is not that we've been commanded to do it. The motivation for all our good works is that God first loved us. So listen to what Paul says. Do what he's commanded but just enjoy that love. You are forgiven because God loved you enough to die on the cross. Everything else doesn't hold a candle compared to that. Amen. God first loved us, and he loved us because we could not save ourselves. That's why he came in the person of Jesus, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He considered his neighbor, which is us, and he died the death we deserve. But the good news is Christ is raised from the dead, right, brother? And, you know, what good is a dead god? That is nothing. These were dead gods that they were eating and drinking to in the temples. But our God is alive, and he's alive for you so that you, too, may have eternal life. I'd like to thank my guest Amen. this morning, the Reverend Philip Fishaber, pastor of Holy Trinitan, Trinity Lutheran Church in Walnut, Illinois. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Thank you. If we have a moment, can I say something about our sponsor? We have about 30 seconds. Okay. For Christ Lutheran School, we had Fiesta Day Parade this past Saturday because it's close to Mexican Independence Day. And I gave out lots and lots of Spanish Bibles and children's books provided by Lutheran Heritage Foundation. I wish I had more because I would have given them all away. So I just want to thank them for their wonderful work providing those good resources to share the word with people of all languages. Oh, thank you for that testimony because they really are an amazing ministry, and you can support them by going to LHF 
lhfmissions.org. Thank you, too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tomorrow we continue in 1 Corinthians with the second half of, or sorry, with chapter 9. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. 